My name is Mark Haskell, and I have the privilege of reading scripture for us this morning. Um, so if you could please stand. I do want to point out that in the bulletin, there's a passage from Luke that's mentioned, but uh, there was an update just before the service, so I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Again, that's Matthew 4, 18 through 22. <clears throat> While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mark. And good job, you guys. Kudos for getting out through the snow and in the, well, there wasn't ice and wind, but it was cold. It's still cold. And so we're grateful that you're here, grateful that you made it this morning safely. And for all those who are at home this morning watching on live stream, hello, welcome. Um, and we're glad that you're safe, we're glad that you're home and hopefully tuning in with us this morning. Um, I want to give you a quick update on Prairie Baptist Church, which we've been talking about the last few months as we've been helping them and uh, kind of partnering with them to fill their pulpit while they're looking for a new pastor. And they voted on a new pastor last Sunday. They voted unanimously to call a man by the name of Brian Hardesty, who I think is currently serving out in uh, North Dakota, uh, to call him as, a, as their lead pastor. And they voted unanimously, called him that afternoon. He accepted the call and plans to be out in Prairie City within the month. So we're going to have uh, he and his family of seven moving out. I think they're going to double or triple the population of Prairie City <laughs> when they come. So uh, we're going to praise the Lord for that. Just very thankful that, uh, that you've, he's been answering our prayers for them and their prayers. DJ Kerr was going to go out there this weekend uh, to preach, but uh, he and their elder, lead elder talked yesterday morning and decided to cancel that, so DJ did not head out there uh, this week, but we want to continue just to keep them in prayers and grateful for that partnership. Now, during the month of January, we've regularly done for seven years now during this month, we are walking through a month-long series on the church, and um, in other words, what we're trying to do is answer the question of who are we? What is the church, and, and who are we as the church? And, and hopefully, this will be a reminder to us during these four weeks of January of our identity, of who we are. And we have dozens, if not hundreds, of voices shouting at us every day, telling us who we ought to be, or who we should be, or who they think we are, right? You open up your smartphone, you walk out the door, you turn on the TV, you drive down the road, uh, you go into a restaurant, anywhere, somebody is telling you, shouting out to you, who you are. And there's all these voices in the world that want to tell us who we are. And the thing is that God has already told us who we are. 
right? Our identity is secure in Christ. We are who we are in Christ. And if you are, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, your identity is secure in Him. He gets to tell you who you are. So, so the issue for us, I think it's a, it's a spiritual battle, is whether or not we will remember who we are, right? Whether or not we will accept what Jesus has to say about us and then live into that identity? Will we actually be people who live like we are in Christ? So, so we're focusing this year during January, we're focusing on four particular identities this month. And the first one that we looked at last week was that we are family. You see these up on the screen or on your bulletin. We are family. And then we are disciples. We're looking at that today. We are servants, and then we are missionaries. Now, this week, um, some of you, many of you, uh, may have received something that you thought was from me. And this happens about every six months that my phone gets lit up on a random day, and all of a sudden, all these people are texting me and calling me and emailing me and say, hey, I got, a, I got an email from you that says you need some money from me or something like that, right? And this happens about every six months because there are people out there who are scammers who seek to use these relationships of trust, like a relationship between pastors and congregations, to manipulate good-hearted people into giving them money. So an email that circulates with my name on it comes out, but it's not from me. It's not from my email address. Trying to lure you into sending them, usually it's Target gift cards or something like that. And maybe it's Target trying to do this. I have no idea. But friends, I just have to say this. Just because something has my name on it, doesn't mean that it's mine, right? Just because they put my name on it doesn't mean that it's from me. And just because something has Jesus's name on it doesn't necessarily mean that it belongs to Jesus, right? Or that it's from Jesus. Because sometimes we get confused about what it means to belong to Jesus, to be his disciple, because there's plenty of people that take on Christ's name, that claim to be his, that call themselves Christians, But being a disciple is more than just calling yourself a Christian, more than just putting Jesus' name on you. True discipleship is what we're going to talk about today. And I'm going to give you, kind of walk through four things about disciples and who disciples are. And the first is that disciples learn from Jesus. True disciples learn from Jesus. And if you look up disciple in the dictionary, that's one of the first, there's usually two definitions. The first definition is is either something like a student or an apprentice or a protege or something like that. These words all boil down to this idea that a disciple is a learner, someone who learns from someone else, which makes sense because Jesus is the wisest and the best teacher who has ever lived. All-time best teacher, the goat of teachers, right? And and those those who heard him teach were consistently blown away with Jesus' teaching. They were amazed, it said, at his teaching because he was always teaching as one who had authority, like he actually knew what he was talking about. And the mark of a true disciple is that they will listen to Jesus as if they truly believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about. Now, in the ancient world where Jesus lived, Jewish rabbis had 
a set of teachings or instructions that was peculiar to them, right? And, and they would often call these their yoke, right? And their disciple, disciples would come and submit to this yoke of teaching. So when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he's, he's telling his disciples, here's the curriculum, take my curriculum, put it on your shoulders like a yoke, and, and attend to it, memorize it, learn it, carry it on when I'm gone. So a true disciple both listens to Jesus like he knows what he's talking about, but also commits themselves to his teaching. And there's one passage in the Gospel of Luke, and I'll have you turn there. It's Luke chapter 10. A beautiful story in the Gospel of Luke um, that gives us a picture of what this kind of attention and commitment to Jesus' teaching actually looks like. So it's Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 38. And it says, now as they went on their way, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, his, his twelve mainly, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now, I have unfortunately never been invited to a women's retreat. And I would guess, I don't know what happens at women's retreats. I don't know what you talk about. I don't know what you do. I've never been there. But I would guess that this story comes up often. Am I correct? This comes up at women's retreats? Okay. Um, maybe not. That's fine. It's because it's a story about two women. There's not a lot of stories just about women. This is a story about two women and their, their, you know, the way that they deal with Jesus or not. And, and I want to suggest this morning that this story isn't mainly about the tension between two personality types, right? You've got Martha on the one side who's this highly stressed, responsible hostess, um, and then you got Mary, who's kind of this laid-back, romantic heroine, right? She would be the Disney princess of the story. Rather, the tension in this story is a tension between two meals. It's a tension between two meals. Okay, Martha is distracted and anxious and troubled about the meal that she was trying to get on the table for her distinguished guest, Jesus. And on the other hand, Mary, her sister, was partaking of a very different meal at the same time. She was feeding on the teachings of Jesus. Okay, so Martha couldn't see beyond the bread that she was baking while Mary was feasting on the bread of life. She had chosen, Jesus says, the good portion the good piece of the meal. She had chosen it. She'd chosen the right meal. There's a different story in John's gospel, which we won't turn to. I'll just summarize it. But there's a moment uh, where many people who, are, who had been, kind of been following Jesus, they were interested in, in Jesus. They even wanted to make Jesus king. Jesus starts saying these really, really difficult things to, to them. And a bunch of them turn away because they find that Jesus' teachings are just too difficult. They're offensive to them. And I believe that happens today. Jesus' teachings can be difficult and offensive, and some turn away from them. 
And at that moment, Jesus turns to his, his crew, his 12 guys, and he says, are you going to leave me too? Are you, are you going to go off as well? And Peter, Simon Peter replies beautifully, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the stuff. You've got the bread. You've got the meal. You've got the teaching. We want to learn from you. Disciples are committed to learning from Jesus. So how do we become, then, disciples who learn? And learning from Jesus, I think, begins with humility. To learn from anyone, we have to realize that we don't know everything. We have to be willing to, to... even break down what we already know to learn something new. We have to accept the fact that Jesus is a lot smarter than we are and then submit to his teachings and admit that he knows what he's talking about. And then secondly, we become disciples who learn by prioritizing learning God's word, giving ourselves to reading the Bible, spending, like Mary, spending time at the feet of Jesus, listening to him teach with our Bibles open, with our hearts ready to receive. And if you don't know where to start in that, if you're like, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to read my Bible, I'd love to do more, but it's confusing, I don't even know where to start, let me encourage you to find someone, find a mentor, someone who's even just a little bit down the road a little bit further than you are with Jesus and ask them to read the Bible with you. Join a, join a Bible study. Alicia's got women's Bible studies you can join. We've got men's Bible studies you, you can join. You could join a home community. I'm encouraging you to be in the Word so that you can learn from Jesus. The second way that disciples, or the second thing that disciples do is that disciples follow Jesus. Okay, because we can think about learning and then make discipleship all about our intellectual knowledge, what we know, what we're, what we're learning, what we're figuring out, how, how well we can do on a theology exam. But being a, a disciple of Jesus is not merely being a pupil in an academic sense with our mind and our heads, but more crucially in the scriptures, being a disciple of Jesus involves our feet. It involves following Jesus where he's going. This is the central metaphor of discipleship, following. And this is where I want to turn us back to Matthew 4, which, which Mark uh, read for us earlier. So if you have your Bibles, open there to Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18. And we have Jesus walking alongside the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and Andrew, and he calls them to follow him. They're out there fishing, and they immediately leave their nets and follow him. And then going on from there, he saw two others, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, in the boat, mending their nets. He calls them as well, and immediately they leave the boat, and they leave their father, and they follow him. On verse 19, Jesus says a command, and he says, follow me, which literally, the words are, come after me, or come behind me. So a disciple, then, is someone who gets behind Jesus and follows him, who goes where he leads, and there's at least... Three implications in this for our lives about what it means to follow Jesus. And the first is that following Jesus implies a closeness to Jesus. So in order to follow Jesus, we have to actually be with him. Okay, Jesus does not run an online school. He doesn't do distance learning. He learns close up. All of his classes are in person in real time, which is Great that he actually promised us, I will be with you always, even till the end of the age. We have to be close to Jesus to be able to follow him. Second, because following Jesus places me behind him and not in front of him, 
It implies a relationship of trust. Right? I don't always know where Jesus is going. Jesus didn't come to Mike and say, hey, can you be the navigator and tell me where to go? I don't get to have the map. He's going where he wants to go. I don't get to be the driver or the captain. I don't call the shots. And that, for me, and probably for you, is a scary place to be. I do not like to be in a car and not be behind the wheel. I like the control. I like the power that comes with that. It can be scary to follow someone when you don't know where you're going. Disciples have to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing and Jesus knows where he's taking them. So when I... I'm out. I usually, when I ride my road bike, I usually ride by myself, like to be solo, but every once in a while I'll ride with someone else. And when I do that, it often puts me in a place where I'll be drafting behind another rider. So to get most of the benefits from drafting, I need to get as close behind the other bicycle rider as I can because then that blocks the, the air that's coming at them and I don't have to work as hard to be able to go as fast. And then they can do that behind me. But when you do that, when you, the closer you get to another biker, the more of a blind spot you have, the less you can actually see what's coming. So I have to trust that the person in front of me is paying attention and won't lead me into danger. In the same way, following Jesus requires me to trust that wherever he takes me, I will not be in danger. And then third... Following Jesus implies leaving everything else behind. So in this story with these four fishermen, following Jesus meant that they had to leave very important things. And for them, it was their livelihoods and their families. And they had to leave those important things for the most important thing. So it says Peter and Andrew immediately left their nets and followed him. Then James and John immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. So they left their livelihood, their nets and their boats. James and John left their father, the family business, their family to follow Jesus. And this leaving behind isn't easy because it actually requires us to renounce every other allegiance in order to pledge allegiance to Jesus. So just a few chapters later, Jesus says in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. These are hard, heavy words that call us to allegiance to Jesus. And and Jesus isn't telling us to hate our families. He's just telling us that if we're going to follow him, our families and anything else cannot be first. He must be. In fact, he takes priority even over our own lives. Just a few chapters later, Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, same words there, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So how do we become disciples who follow Jesus? And I'll say it again, but to follow Jesus, disciples must spend time being close to him. Because if you're a disciple, you're going to want to know where Jesus is taking you. And you find out where Jesus is taking you from Jesus. And sometimes I wonder if we actually neglect time with Jesus. Like we neglect opening our Bibles and speaking to Jesus and opening our ears to listen to Jesus because we're afraid that he might tell us to go somewhere we don't want to go. 
We're afraid that we might have to follow somewhere difficult. But true disciples not only want to know where Jesus is leading, they simply want to be with Jesus. Spend time being close to Jesus. Second, I think confessing those places in our lives where we try to take the wheel away from Jesus, try to take the driver's seat, rather than trusting him to lead. That means allowing God to shine a light into our, our hearts, onto our allegiances, those idols that we hold above Jesus, asking ourselves, are we truly committed to following Jesus? Or are we really just committed to our own way? And if God reveals anything to us, we repent and ask God's Spirit to help us follow Jesus, even when it's hard. Third thing this morning is that disciples, they learn from Jesus, they follow Jesus, and disciples obey Jesus. Disciples obey Jesus. So we confess, we repent, and we obey. And this is tied really close to the call to follow Jesus. In the life of a disciple, you can't really separate following and obeying. They're two sides of the same coin. And the first step of obedience is our initial response to Jesus' call to discipleship. And many of us have made that response. Jesus has said, follow me. And we've said, okay, we're going to follow you. And you see this in, the, in these disciples as they follow immediately. In verse 20 of Matthew 4, immediately they left their nets and followed him. That was Simon and Peter. And then immediately in verse 22, James and John left their boat and their father and followed him. They obeyed by following this call to follow challenges then any kind of what's been called easy believism, which is this widespread, pretty damaging heresy that says that in order to be saved, that is, in order for me to be forgiven and to get into heaven, all I have to do is to assent to the truth of the gospel, say, yes, I believe that's true, and then recite a prayer, like the sinner's prayer or something like that, and I'm in, I'm good. But the problem with this view is that the Bible doesn't actually teach that. Jesus himself and his apostles after him taught that those who come to him for salvation will take his words seriously and they will put them into action. James, in his book, clarifies this distinction between true and false disciples when he writes this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because what do people who just hear do? They deceive themselves. Jesus himself confronts all of us with a pretty simple question in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you call me Master? Why do you call me Teacher? Why do you call me Savior? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not do what I tell you. Those two things do not go together. To call Jesus your Lord and Savior and not do what he tells you to do, those don't go together. True disciples keep Jesus' commands. True disciples obey their Lord. 1 John 2. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, Whoever says he is in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. See, faith itself is not merely an intellectual ascent. It's not just reciting a token prayer. Genuine faith is submission to a king. And I'm not saying, you don't hear me saying, that, that we in any way earn our salvation. 
or earn forgiveness from God. Salvation is always a free gift of grace. It's not of works, lest any of us should boast. But genuine faith, all the time, genuine faith in Christ necessarily results in a life of obedience. You cannot separate the two. True disciples are those who obey. So how do we become disciples who obey? Well, disciples who obey Jesus must first be disciples who listen to Jesus, right? Who learn from him. Where does this take us? This takes us once again back to our Bibles. We have to be people of the word. We have to be word-centered, spending time listening to Jesus in his word, the Bible, so that we know what he wants us to do, how he wants us to live. But Jesus is also very clear about what obedience looks like, and it's one word, and the word is love. He's very clear that to obey him means to love. So just two examples in John 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So the the basic premise here from Jesus' own mouth is if you are wondering, if you're curious, if you're confused about what Jesus wants you to do, about what obedience looks like, go find someone and love them. I'm not saying ask them out on a date. I'm not saying give them a big kiss. I'm saying love them, serve them, sacrificially, generously do something as Jesus would do to someone else. Fourth and final thing here is that that disciples learn from Jesus, follow Jesus, obey Jesus, and disciples become like Jesus. They begin to look like Jesus more and more. Because Jesus is not interested in leaving us in our sin. He's not interested in leaving us in our immaturity, in our selfishness, in our brokenness, although we'll all spend the rest of our lives working ourselves out of those things. Or God working us out of those things. He is in the business of making men and women into new creations. And the natural result of discipleship, the natural result of following and being with Jesus, obeying Him, is always transformation. Discipleship is necessarily transformative. I mean, He even states, Jesus states His intentions when He calls these fishermen to be His first disciples in verse 19. What does He say to them? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It tells you, I'm going to change you right from the get-go. I'm going to change you into something different. I'm going to take what you are, all of the beautiful image of God parts of you, your, your career, your knowledge, your personality, everything that, I, that God has placed in you. I'm going to take that along with all your warts and all your impure motives and all your besetting sins and all the overwhelming parts and faults of your life, all of the rough edges. I'm going to take all of that I'm going to form you into someone who looks like me. I'm going to form you into something I can use in my kingdom. I'm going to make you into a fisher of men. And as disciples of Jesus, we're all becoming something more than we could ever be on our own. Because Jesus is in the business of making us more like himself. Romans 8.29, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He set us aside to, be, to look like Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And that's our destiny. Our destiny is to be like Jesus, to look like Jesus. And God will do this. 
If we are in him, he'll do this. He promised Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So how do we become disciples who look like Jesus? And the first is to look to Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he's writing this church, and he basically said that we become like Jesus as we behold him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. The more that we look at Jesus, the more that we become like Jesus. And how do we look at Jesus? I've said it like three or four or eight times this morning. We open His Word. We go to the Bible. We read the Bible. We meditate on it. We memorize it. We learn from it. So if you're not reading the Bible, open your Bible. If you don't know how, find somebody who can help you. And if you can't find somebody, come talk to us. All of our names and numbers, the elders, deacons, ministry leaders are on the back of your bulletin. We're available. Come talk to us. Talk to Alicia if you're a woman and would like to get connected with other gals. Talk to Eric Rice if you want to get in a group of guys who are studying the Bible together. He's the guy to go to this year for that. Look to Jesus. Be in the Word. Second, to become like Jesus, we must intentionally do the same kind of things that Jesus did. We must imitate Jesus. If we are to become who God has made us to be, we're to imitate Jesus. And the words of 1 Peter 2.21 put it perfectly. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He's left us an example, specifically here an example of suffering, that we might follow in his steps, that we might walk in the same way that Jesus walked. You want to learn how to look like Jesus? Then look to Jesus and imitate Jesus. Now, what does all this mean for us as a church together? So, in January, we're talking about what it means to be the church. We're family, we're disciples, we're, we're servants, and we're missionaries. We've been reminded these last two weeks specifically that we are a family of disciples. It's not like we're off lone rangering and doing discipleship on our own. We're a family of disciples. And as a family of disciples, we have four core values that drive our understanding of who we are, that is, our identity, and they drive our mission as well, what we do. So who we are and what we do, our identity and our mission. So if you paid any attention today, you've probably recognized or seen or heard all four of these core values kind of percolating to the surface of today's message. And here they are. The church is word-centered. Have you heard that today? We're word-centered. We're Bible people. We love the Bible because the Bible points to Jesus. We're word-centered people because we're Jesus-centered people. He is our rabbi. He's our teacher. We look to him in his word. We attend to his teachings by learning the Bible. And we obey by submitting ourselves to his commands, which we can find right here in the Bible. As disciples, we are Bible people because we are Jesus people. Second, the church is radically dependent. So to follow Jesus is to trust Jesus, including trusting that where he's taking us And what he's asking us to do is the right thing, the best thing, the good thing. Obedience to Jesus will look radical. It will look out of this world in some ways. It will feel scary and frightening. So radical dependence, following Jesus, sometimes where we don't want to go, 
will require spirit-empowered courage from us as disciples. Third, the church practices generous love. And according to Jesus' own words, obedience to him can be summed up in one word, love. And then finally, the church makes disciples. So when Jesus left us with a job to do in Matthew 28, go and make disciples. What he wanted us to do was reproduce more of ourselves in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, and to the ends of the earth among the nations. Make disciples of all nations. So when Jesus left the earth, he entrusted his gospel to his disciples, to his church, and he intends to use us to spread his kingdom over the entire globe, which is a huge task. A task that starts with us as we learn to, disciple, to be disciples who learn from and follow and obey and become more and more like Jesus. And the good thing is, like I said before, he has not left us alone. He's with us. He's saved us. And the same power that saves us is the same power that empowers us to go and do what Jesus has called us to do. Today, as we come to the table, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we do each and every week, we remember as we take this bread and this cup, we remember the Lord's body, which was given for us. We remember Jesus' blood, which was poured out so that we could have forgiveness from our sins. As he took our place so that we could become, then, children of God, so we, we could become disciples. And as you come this morning, for those who are in Christ, come to the table and remember, first of all, what he's done for you. My prayer is that as you prayerfully just consider and connect with Jesus this morning and listen to him, that he would send you out empowered and encouraged to be a disciple that follows and learns from and obeys and becomes more and more like Jesus. So we're all welcome to come. We're going to, I think Melissa's going to play some quiet music as you come and take, uh, you can take it as families or individuals, however you want to do. If there's somebody alone, maybe grab them and pull them in with you to take of the supper this morning. But as she plays, I'd encourage you to come. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to the table this morning. We are reminded again of the meal that you have prepared for us. You feed us through your word. You feed us the bread of life, who is Jesus. You feed us even through this small meal that we take of this bread and, and juice, the fruit of the vine, remembering the gospel and having our souls be nourished as we partake of it. Jesus, we thank you for coming and for teaching us, for walking with us, for be becoming one of us, becoming like us. And Lord, we pray that today as you, have, um, as you have shown us your example, an example of sacrifice, an example of love, that we would come to you like the fishermen, like Andrew and, and Peter and James and John, and that, that we would follow you, that we would seek to know and follow you, Jesus that you would take us to places that we would never go on our own because you are the one who's leading and guiding and protecting. And Lord, we pray that we would go there courageously. God, give us the faith to listen to you. Give us the faith to pursue you even when it's difficult. Give us the faith to look at you and to be transformed more and more into your likeness as we follow in your steps. We pray all these things in your name and for your glory. Amen.